Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Elizabeth Warren has famously declared war on private equity, but it's not the only part of the investment world that would be impacted by the next person in the White House. 2020 will usher in an electoral impact on the real estate market. So we sat down with Pierre Debas, a managing partner at Romer Debas, to ask what the effect would be and why the market for real estate typically slows down during an election year. Every election year that we see or the months leading up to election, we always see a slowdown activity. And a lot of that is due to consumer confidence and the fear of what policies will the White House enact that can directly correlate with an impact on pricing of housing. And if you think about it from a consumer's perspective, they're investing in an illiquid asset where if they make that decision, that's a long-term decision. Mm. So if a candidate is elected that goes into the White House that doesn't necessarily have policies that are for pro-real estate per se, that's gonna have a negative impact on their investment. Does it affect the luxury end more and then trickle down, or is it across the board? Everyone holds off them their purchases no matter where. You know, I think honestly it's across the board. Um, more so, the luxury market's more driven by how the economy's doing because, you know, the need for a second home isn't a dire need. The need for a primary residence necessarily is, you know, prompted by a life event or the desire to, you know, live the American dream of buying a home. Um, but I think definitely it, it impacts the market across the board. When we talk about, when we sort of compare the two political parties, I, I, you know, there is a lot of sense on the Democratic side that they would sort of maybe push forward uh, incentives for people to buy homes, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, raising the mortgage deductions and, mm-hmm. and providing other sort of financial incentives. Do you think that that's something that would be politically feasible? And if so, what type of impact would it have on the housing market? You know, right now, the when we had tax reform, obviously, a lot of the deductions associated with housing were taken away or reduced. And that we saw that have a negative impact on the market in general. Mm-hmm. Um, if a Democrat's elected and starts providing more tax breaks that are related related to housing ownership that should, in theory, you know, prompt people to own instead of rent. And that's one of the biggest concerns that we're going to have in 2020 if the you know, Democrats take control is that is that going to have a negative sentiment towards renters remaining to be renters as opposed to saving to buy a home? Um, to give you a good statistic, the um, Freddie Mac stats just came out that 82 percent of renters favor remaining to be renters as opposed to trying to try to buy a home. 80? 82. Oh, wow. In the current scenario because it's Republicans. In- Correct. Mm. Mm. 
Do you think that uh, would-be real estate transactors, sellers, buyers, uh, in their minds leading into an election year, tend to overstate the potential impact of political change, mm-hmm. and that ultimately laws regarding anything move much more slowly and incrementally than maybe they think? Yeah, that, that's that's hundred percent a fair statement to make. Because now, if you take, for instance, Bernie Sanders' proposal, right. Bernie's proposing nationwide rent regulation. Mm-hmm. Now, in theory, you know that would have a very detrimental impact on the home home buying market because it'll suppress rents and maintain the desire to be a renter as opposed to buying. Now, practically speaking, it, constitutionally, from a constitutional perspective, does the White House have the authority to do that? Right. What gives the White House the power to regulate rents in Tempe, Arizona, and Rockville, Maryland? I mean, it's a that will take years to iron out after a number of lawsuits where who's to say what the outcome will be. So to your point, you know, that is that is a very, you know, accurate statement to make that a lot of this necessarily is theoretical in a, in a lot of ways. I'm talking a lot about the demand side. What about the supply side with either of the particular parties, whether there's a focus on affordable housing in particular? Mm-hmm. And, you know, are we going to see anything like that starting to bring to bear, incentivize people to buy or at least be able be able to buy? Well, you know, when you talk about affordable housing, that's a very key component to, I think, the social fabric of any city. In New York City, we've had a big push in affordable housing the last couple of years. Um, but when you're talking about creating, you know, national rent regulation, the the question that's coming up a lot in the in politics is that should owning property be for profit, quote unquote? Mm-hmm. Now, if, if landlords aren't going to derive a profit from owning property, who's going to want to invest in real estate? Who's going to create affordable housing? Who's going to create a, a multifamily projects or buy them or invest? In them. That's the biggest. That's one of the biggest concerns as well. So uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room with, the, with regards to sort of the mid-level real estate market, and that's Fannie and Freddie, mm-hmm. which should have been dealt with years ago. They still hasn't been dealt with, mm-hmm. and it's possible that whoever is president after, in 2021 uh, is going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the future hold for Fannie and Freddie, and how much of an effect is that going to have on the market? You know, I was just at the annual Freddie Mac conference mm-hmm. in Washington, um, the multifamily conference, and they're talking about coming out of conservatorship in the next year or so. And what Freddie Mac has done um, with the multifamily market is provided a great amount of liquidity for the marketplace at low interest rates, which has been very good outcome for the real estate market nationally. Um, when they come out of conservatorship, uh, who's, I don't know what will happen, to be honest. I mean, were their lending regulations more stringent now in conservatorship? Will they be more keen to, you know, lend, start lending more actively? I don't know. But, but how, I mean, how important, though, is that? I mean, even, and I don't mean just from the home buyer side, but even from the investor side, mm-hmm. and you look at the number of at least smaller investors who rely on Fannie, Freddie, or FHA loans in order to sort of facilitate these investments. Um, I mean, at some point, I mean, whatever the, the solution is, mm-hmm. it's going to look probably different than what it is now. Does that worry you at just from an investment perspective? Um, at the moment, I, I wouldn't say so, because I feel like we're at a healthy point from a lending perspective with the banks. Mm-hmm. You know, we've come out of the Dodd-Frank era where banks grappled with how to lend in that environment. And now we're, banks are lending at a very healthy pace. Okay. Um, underwriting has been conservative, um, yet it hasn't been overly conservative like when we first saw Dodd-Frank get passed a number of years ago. This week, Jay Powell faced two days of questions from lawmakers on Capitol Hill. The Federal Reserve Chair testified before both the Joint Economic Committee and the House Budget Committee, and his message was steady as she goes. Powell painted a rosy economic picture calling the U.S. economy a, quote, star performer. The Fed Chair reinforced the message that the central bank's three rate cuts already this year will be enough to keep the record expansion on track. We do think monetary policy is in a good place. But we're going to be watching very carefully incoming data. And if developments emerge that cause a material reassessment 
of the outlook, then we'll act appropriately. After the first day of testimony, we spoke with Michelle Girard, the chief U.S. economist at NetWest Markets. We started by asking her if she found Powell's comments on the whole to be neutral, hawkish, or dovish. Were neutral, but I but I had the same read as you. Uh, I think had mentioned earlier, where if anything, it was potentially a bit dovish. I think coming out of the October FOMC meeting, where the Fed took such a hard line in in terms of signaling that that policy was on hold, and it felt like the hurdle uh, for for lowering rates further was very high. Today, we we saw I think some some ongoing concern. You know that there were still notable risks and and really the acknowledgement that we are in a very different environment than the Fed thought we would be in even a couple of years ago and and the fact that we're looking at downside risk perhaps associated with inflation uh, you know I I come away with the with the general feeling that you know this is a Fed that does still remain very open to the possibility maybe not between now and the end of the year but as we look ahead to 2020 for the need of, of for perhaps uh, additional rate cuts Yeah, let's talk about, in particular, the inflation tack that he took, Michelle, in particular saying that persistently low inflation could lead to, quote, an unwelcome slide in the public's longer-run expectations of inflation. How did the CPI data today feed into that for you? Well, we did see signs of of some softness in the the CPI numbers, particularly in uh, categories like rent and and shelter costs. And, you know, the year-over-year numbers continue to remain at at 1.7 percent below the Fed's mandate. And, and as you noted, uh, Caroline, the, you know, the Fed chair talked about inflation expectations and, and long-run uh, expectations that are held in the public. I mean, this is actually an area that we've been surprised we haven't heard more from um, the, the, Fed, uh, the Fed chair and other policymakers about. Because if you look at the downtrend that has really been evident in, in over the course of recent months, you know, the, the Fed has, in their statements, continued to sort of care characterize inflation expectations as low, but not really acknowledging that they have been moving lower and in, in, in our mind to somewhat worrisome uh, developments. And, and that isn't really getting, hasn't gotten as much attention as we may have thought we'd see from Fed officials. So for him to be acknowledging those kinds of risks today, I, I thought was, um, you know, was significant. Now, what is getting everyone's attention, at least right now in the markets, is the headline that the U.S.-China trade talks may be hitting a snag over farm purchases. We were mentioning that Dow Jones has a story out that says uh, China is leery of putting a numerical number on how much it's going to buy of U.S. soybeans, pork, and other agricultural products annually. It wants some kind of leverage. It doesn't want to cut a deal that looks one-sided in Washington's direction. How are you folding in the resolution or possible resolution of phase one into your forecast? Well, I have to tell you, we've been sort of pushing back on a lot of this trade optimism. And and it's felt kind of lonely because the markets have certainly embraced the news that we might have a short-term deal. And and while I understand that, you know, the the prospects for a deal might remove uh, some uncertainty, at least in in the market's mind, uh, certainly about uh, a further escalation, you know, we've been a little bit skeptical about how far the markets have gone on just the positive talk or hope 
hopes of a deal. First of all, as these headlines exactly underscore, we're not there yet. And and we've been here before where we've come so close and had things fall apart and ultimately find ourselves in a situation where the, the trade war is escalating. So it isn't done until it's done. And then even when it is done, that doesn't mean that it couldn't get reversed if, if China isn't seen as, you know, kind of holding to the terms of the deal. I mean, at any point, you could you could see this deal be kind of thrown into question. And so when we think about the economic impact and the likelihood that businesses will will feel the removal of uncertainty such that they're willing to engage again as strongly in investing and hiring, which has really been, I think, been put to the sideline as the as companies have felt this uncertainty about trade. You know, I, I just don't I don't believe companies are going to to quickly change their behavior on even if a short term deal is signed. So from an economic standpoint, while I get the markets uh, are cheering or would cheer an agreement, right. I just don't think there's going to be much there. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This week, the streaming wars gained a new villain, a Disney one. The Disney Plus online streaming site went live on Tuesday to much fanfare and with a few technological glitches. Disney is looking to take on rivals Netflix and Amazon with their own $7 a month option and with the major benefit of a content library that stretches back decades and includes beloved franchises such as Star Wars and the Marvel Universe. We talked about it with Michael Morris, Senior Managing Director at Guggenheim Securities, and started by asking him if the first day tech glitches would hinder any enthusiasm for Disney+. Plus. Uh, not necessarily at first. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of times you launch a service like this, especially one with the potential for the popularity that the Disney Plus service has, uh, you're bound to potentially have some, some glitches. I think early on, you probably have some frustrated users. Hopefully you work through that quickly. And in terms of a market sign, we hope that that means that the, the demand is very, very strong for the service right now. If nothing else, it gets people talking on Twitter and perhaps gets more people to sign up to see what all the um, excitement is about. We understand that some 19 million Verizon customers will be able to get Disney Plus for free for the first year. Does it matter how Disney builds up the, the number of subscribers, whether it's through partnerships with Verizon or organically with people paying $7 per month? Um, in the grand scheme of things, I would say no. Um, it, it, you know, it, it does matter over time, but right now I feel like the potential 
audience for this product is enormous. So the important thing at the start is to get folks in the door. And remember, those Verizon subscribers, Verizon-based subscribers, will still be paying subscribers to Disney. We believe it will be at a discounted price. But really, Disney's playing the long game here. I think they have a great product. They think they have a great product. It's about really getting people using that product, becoming part of their lives. Then they get pricing power over time, as well as some of, as well as, as some of the other benefits that they can receive from, from having those dedicated consumers. Clearly, the United States is lapping it up. Netflix has done so well because of the international growth story as well. How mm -hmm. much do you expect this demand that seems to be unhinged today in the US and as it goes live in Canada and the Netherlands today, how do you expect that to be replicated abroad? Sure. So we think that, that the U.S. Will be the, will be the primary source of subscribers for this service in the near term. Over time, we think that Disney Plus, so focused specifically on the Disney branded service, we think there's going to be a large appetite for that on a global basis as well. We look at the popularity of the company's films on a global basis as something of an indicator for what the built-in audience could be, the type of demand you can see on a global basis. We think that's incredibly attractive. We think that markets outside the U.S. have a faster growth rate in the number of broadband subscribers, mobile subscribers, that ultimately can become streaming service subscribers. And one other thing I'd point out, we're only talking about Disney Plus right now. Remember, Disney owns virtually all of and controls all of Hulu, and we haven't really even started talking about the international opportunity for that service yet, which we think is a big part of the Disney value that's underappreciated. And I'm really glad you bring up Hulu because one of our columnists, Tara LaChapelle, wrote about how Hulu is really Disney's secret weapon because anyone who cancels their cable package and gets Disney Plus, if there are adults in the house, they might want Hulu. If they like sports, they might want to get ESPN Plus. Disney is now offering a bundle there's that word, um, where anyone who wants all three services ends up paying $13 a month rather than paying for each app separately, which would total $18. Are we on our way to seeing the return of the bundle? It's a great question. I think I would look at it a little bit differently. I'd describe it like this. Consumption of video has become more and more fragmented, right? We used to have a situation where essentially you had one choice, especially in the US, and that was for a pay TV bundle. And now not every service has everything, but you have choices. You can still get the full bundle. You can get free content on things like YouTube or Pluto. Um, and there's a lot of different things in between. From Disney's perspective, they're battling this fragmentation by trying to meet as many customers as possible in the different places. Will they still be represented in the in the big bundle? Yes, absolutely. Will they just have a Disney product? Yes, absolutely. But to your point, they're offering a smaller bundle at a very digestible $13 a month that includes kids, adults, and sports content all in one, and it just gives them one more way to try to satisfy that consumer demand. It's November and hockey season is back in full swing, for the NHL at least. Women's hockey is left without many options. The closing of the Canadian Women's Hockey League in May left only one pro league for women in all of North America. But many Olympians and top players are boycotting the National Women's Hockey League this season, whose highest announced salary was only $15,000. Instead, they are fighting for an economically sustainable women's ice hockey team by standing together and showcasing their skills in the Dream Gap Tour. This is an effort to draw attention to the lack of a professional women's ice hockey league that pays players a living wage and has the infrastructure to set up the sport for long-term success. Scarlett sat down with Kendall Coyne Schofield, captain of the U.S. national hockey team, an Olympic gold medalist, 
and talked about the current state of women's hockey. Yeah, the Dream Gap Tour we recently launched uh, with the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association which we have over 200 players wide across uh, the world. And we launched, launched the Dream Gap Tour, um, which is a series of events. And the reason behind the name of the Dream Gap Tour is because we're working so hard to close the gap between what a little girl can dream of and what a little boy can dream of. I have two brothers, and they grew up knowing if they're good enough, they can play professional hockey and make a living doing it. My case, all the other girls' cases, all of the young girls that we see today, that's not the case. They grow up knowing, well, if you're not one of 23 players to play on the Olympic team, your career after college is over. You so don't have a professional league that's sustainable enough to make a living playing in it, and that's what we're fighting for. So I want to dig into that a little bit more because certainly there's a huge divergence in that path. You talk about your brothers. Um, Growing up, girls learn to play hockey just like boys do. The best of the best get yep. recruited for Division One schools, and they play there just like boys. And uh, those that can try out for their Olympic team, their national team, and if they can, they compete for their team just like boys. And then after that, the road splits completely. What's happened mm -hmm. with uh, female hockey players? I mean, there were two professional women's hockey leagues last year at this time. Yes, and you mentioned that, that there there were two professional leagues standing at this time last year, but those leagues weren't professional. There's nothing professional about them. You can't make a living playing in them. You can't be professional. It's basically a glorified beer league in which it's a way for us to continue to play hockey. We have to find training mechani mechanisms on our own. We're bringing our bags home. We're practicing at 10.30 at night. There's no pregame meals. There's no, there's no sense of being a professional athlete in the current state of the professional women's game. And that's been how it has been for as long as I've played this game. There's never been a sustainable and viable professional league that has allowed us to make a living playing the game if we're the best in the, of the best. Why and is it so hard to make that work? It, it shouldn't be. It, it really shouldn't be. I think it's because oftentimes as women, we're grateful for opportunities. And that's where this Professional Women's Hockey Players Association came about is we're done being grateful for the leagues that are standing because they're not good enough. We can't make a living playing this game. So why do we continue to sign ourselves up for it? Why do we who work so hard every single day to make our craft possible give ourselves to a league that's paying us $2,500 and calling ourselves professional athletes. We're not professional athletes. It's a hobby. Mm -hmm. You're making $2,500. You're practicing twice a week at 1030 at night, and that's professional. Mm -hmm. the, right. the best product of professional women's hockey has never been on the ice together, and that's what I'm most excited about for this Dream Gap Tour is for the best product of professional women's hockey to finally be on the ice because we've never had the infrastructure to allow us to be on the ice. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, what needs to happen for you to establish a framework uh, for an economically viable women's professional league that does pay players a living wage? I mean, the Dream Gap Tour is fantastic, but mm -hmm. it's a one-time event. What happens after this? How do you put the building blocks in place? We need the infrastructure, we need the resources to support the women's game. We don't have that right now. We don't have people willing to put tons of money into the women's game that allows us to be professional. What kind of discussions have you had with, say, the NHL or NHL team owners about the prospect for a, uh, a viable, an economically viable professional women's hockey league? I think if you ask all of us that are part of this Professional Women's Hockey Players Association, we want the NHL. We want to see a WNHL in our future. We want to be 
a sister organization to the NHL, and we want them to be our brother organization. You look at the w WNBA, mm -hmm. you look at how many of those NBA players you see supporting the women's players, how many of those women's players supporting the men's players. It's, it's electrifying. And, you know, just recently, the, the playoffs are happening and the teams are cross-country, and, and the WNBA say, you know, said, you know what, we need to make a professional decision here. We're going to be chartering the teams cross-country to compete in the playoffs. Yeah, so the WNBA. Just to, give you, just, just to give you an example, we usually fly in at midnight and we're taking holiday and shuttles to and from the hotel, packing our bags in there. And then when we get to the hotel, we eat continental breakfast. And then we're told if you want a post-game meal, you can go Uber to get one. So the current state of the game is nothing professional. Right. You basically have just described a tournament for peewees um, over the weekend. That you know. I got treated better in peewee hockey, actually. Okay, well that says something. You mentioned the WNBA and how that's a good model um, for how things can work. Um, talk a little bit here about the sponsors for the Dream Gap Tour because they are, there's a lot of them and there's actually uh, some big names here. We're talking about Adidas, Billie Jean King's organization, Magellan Corporation. Have you had mm -hmm. discussions with any of these entities about um, a longer term sponsorship for your organization? The the immediate conversation has been about the Dream Gap Tour, but all of these companies that have shown support understand the bigger picture, understand that all of the product and the best players in the world have come together to fight for a sustainable league. We're willing to forego the convenience of the couple leagues that are still standing today in order to fight for a better future. And all of these companies, then they're, they're, they're big ones, they want to be a part of the future and they want to see young girls be able to grow up, make a, li make a living doing it, and they know we're fighting for that right now. And so it's, to me, a no-brainer why, why, why they're on board. Um, you know, I'm an Adidas athlete, so I might be biased towards them, but they've been the front runner in supporting mm -hmm. the women's game through and through. And so when they jumped on board, I, you know, I was so excited because, um, you know, they're one of the only companies that have a women's hockey team. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, um, I mentioned Billie Jean King's organization. Uh, she obviously mm -hmm. is very invested in, she's a pioneer in her own right. Um, any particular yep. lessons that you got from Billie Jean King when it comes to uh, your organization? Uh, we, we learn something new every day from Billie Jean King. This process has not been easy. It's, it's been exhausting um, and times, times do get tough, but you look at what Billie Jean King did and what she continues to do and we've reached out to her we've, for support and guidance and strength. And you know when we look at what she accomplished, we say, well, she did it, so can we. And she, there, there, were very, there were less of her back, in the, back when she started her fight over 50 years ago and we're 200 strong. So, um, we have one collective voice as players, and that's something we learned from her. And with that, we're, we're so much stronger together. Can you give me a specific concrete outcome that you would like to see as a result of ho holding this Dream Gap Tour? I would love to see a WNHL in the fall of 2020. Kendall Coyne Schofield, thank you so much. Professional ice hockey player joining us from LA. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. 
That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.